The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome, oh happy warrior. I am your rabbi. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lapin, reminding you that the more that things change, the more we have to depend on those things that never change. And one of the things that never changes is that you must always beware of experts, particularly experts who have a financial interest in a certain outcome. Let us imagine, let's just imagine if you would, that you are a governor of one of the states of the United States. Now, is it in your interests to use the highest figures imaginable for the coronavirus, or is it in your interest to say, hey, everybody, things are actually looking better? It's obvious if you're trying to get money from the federal government, then we know what you're going to do. If you are a newspaper or media outlet on television or on the internet, are you going to attract eyeballs which relates to your advertising revenue by saying, hey, good news? Or are you going to get it by saying, new horrifying figures emerge from the latest experts' predictions? You see, there really is a, a very strong force pushing towards the worst of the worst case scenario. That's what's going on. All of which is by way of introduction to tell you that uh, I've got good news. I really do. I've got good news for you. I'm going to try and break it out for you so as that it's easy to see that this just is not uh, your rabbi being Pollyanna and seeing the good in everything. No, this is the reality. And here today, this show is yet another reason today to go ahead and banish fear, panic, and hysteria. I'm also going to want to today uh, talk a little bit about uh, business advice. And we're going to take a look at simplifying some of the things you read and some of the things you hear. You are in business, right? If you do not work for the United States Post Office, if you are not a judge on the United States Supreme Court, and you are not a tenured university professor, well, in that case, you're in business. Being in business means that you can be fired by your customers. Being in business means that you are rewarded ultimately by how successfully you serve your customers. Now, even if you think of yourself as an employee, stop it. Stop thinking of yourself as an employee. You might be a business professional with only one customer, namely your employer, but that still must serve as a constant reminder that nobody but nobody cares as much about your welfare as you do. Nobody cares as much about your income as you do. And one thing is for sure, and that is not only is there no expert out there who cares as much about you as you do, but when you follow the advice of that expert 
and make a horrendous calamity of whatever you're dealing with, that expert's address is not available for you to go along and get compensation from them. So take everything you hear into your computing mind. That's why the good Lord gave you a brain and the capacity to process information and think it through. And when expert information comes your way, but it comes from somebody who's got a vested interest, you know, think how well would a climate scientist be? Let's imagine you're a climate scientist working for one of the news networks. And you decide to announce one day, as a result of my careful analysis, not only is the sea level not rising, but temperatures are not going up in any dangerous way. And the only result will be better agriculture and better food and more delicious fruit for everybody. That climate scientist would be a fool to announce his findings because it would be utterly against his own basic financial self-interest. Now, he would be a very honest person to do that, but honestly, do we expect people to act that dramatically against their own financial interests? No, of course not. And so governors are doing what governors do. Politicians are doing whatever politicians do. News outlets are doing what they do. And uh, how about if you happen to be a national center for disease control trying to get more funding from Congress? Would you tell them that the problem is enormous or would you tell them, hey, everything is under control? Everything is actually working very well. Americans are taking care of it, not at a federal level. Not at a state. No, regular Americans are taking care of life as best they possibly can. In addition to uh, telling you about uh, some of the business advice, you're an entrepreneur, you're a business professional, and you you receive uh, advice. I mean, really, is uh, what Jack Welch said in his book about how he ran General Electric. Is that really useful for you in your business? Probably not. Most likely not. You could probably use that time more effectively, I would think. I want to also tell you uh, a little bit about Passover, because uh, Passover actually has relevance to everybody. Not in the way that you'll sometimes hear people saying that uh, Buddhism, you know, has lessons for everybody and Hinduism has and Ramadan has lessons for everybody. Uh, No, it so happens that Passover actually does have lessons for people regardless of background. And I'm going to invest a few minutes of the show in uh, some of that information as well. And then, if time allows, I was thinking of also playing you another episode in the material that I prepared for the cruise, the Mediterranean History of Civilization cruise that I was going to co-host with Glenn Beck and with David Barton 
and with Bill O'Reilly. That cruise obviously was cancelled, but I do have some material I prepared specifically for those who had uh, purchased tickets to be on that cruise, and they were all going to receive a little MP3 player with this material on it. So I'm going to, if time allows, I say, share you a little bit more of this material. I hope you find it as fascinating as I do. But, um, you know, if, if you thought that the founding of the State of Israel in 1948 was a sudden phenomenon that concerned mostly Jews, I will show you material that just blew my mind when I began to wrap my head around it, that showed that throughout the 19th century, throughout the 1800s, particularly in the United States of America, but also in Great Britain and Europe, Christians were deeply committed to the developing of this dream and actualizing this dream into reality of a Jewish homeland in their ancestral lands where Abraham walked so many years before. So uh, I'll share a little bit of that with you as well. But first of all, a thank you if you are not only a happy warrior, but a happy warrior who has been among those happy warriors helping to tell folks about this show. Well, congratulations. Um, It's been an absolutely terrific first quarter of 2020, uh, January, February, March, and our listenership has climbed meteorically. Our downloads have gone very high and uh, and i'm thrilled about that 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 just fills me with new zeal and enthusiasm for the show okay so uh, let's start off with a newspaper article which scared me alarmed me petrified me terrified me let me tell you about it it's the new york times and the reason it's important is because many other news outlets around the country still take their lead from the New York Times. Here is the article that really bothered me. The other option is death. New York starts sharing of ventilators. Wow, okay, this is pretty scary. I mean, I knew that we were terrifyingly short of ventilators. And I knew that many people who catch the coronavirus need ventilators in order to breathe and stay alive. And the subheading after the main headline, the other option is death. New York starts sharing of ventilators. To keep coronavirus patients breathing, hospitals are pioneering a little tested method. And the article goes on to speak about uh, how this hospital system in New York is has begun, and I'm reading now from the article, has begun treating two patients instead of one on some ventilators, a desperate measure that could help alleviate a shortage of the critical breathing machines and help hospitals around the country respond to the surge of virus patients expected in the coming weeks. New York Presbyterian Hospital began ventilating sharing this week. Ventilating sharing has been explored in a few crisis situations, such as the Las Vegas shooting in 2017. We're doing something that's never been done before, but we have no choice. 
we'd have to say to two patients, either we're going to put both of you on this, or we're going to have to pick one of you and leave the other one to die. This is all straight out of the article. Scary stuff, my friends. And you have to go more than halfway through the article, more than halfway through the article, to find out that this is only being tested in case they ever have to do that. At the moment, the hospital is not short of ventilators. And if you hear me hyperventilating right now, it's because I feel intensely about how damaging it is to terrify people and scare people and drive people to panic and hysteria. It's wrong and it is not the way leaders should behave. But they are what they are and our politicians are what they are. And so, therefore, my service to you, as best as I can possibly do it, is to urge you to be careful before you accept information from people who have a vested interest in it going a certain way. And sometimes, by the way, it's members of the public, maybe on social media, you'll find breathless announcements on Twitter and on Facebook. I've seen them myself. Of people saying, for heaven's sake, be careful, don't go out, stop endangering all of us, and you know, all this kind of thing. And uh, why did the government not prepare hundreds of thousands of ventilators? So I ask you all uh, a simple, well, why don't I finish reading for you whatever I'm going to read from the article? Um, the hospital, um, again, from this article that you have to go more than halfway through to get to the paragraph I'm now reading, up till now, you would have believed that New York Presbyterian Hospital System is totally out of ventilators, and under desperate circumstances, they have been forced to put more than one patient on a ventilator, which is a very, very tricky business, because each patient requires different volumes of air. Okay, You have to get all the way down to say... The ho- I'm reading now. The hospital has not yet run out of ventilators. But, Dr. Beitler said, it was better to try the te- technique now than when you have absolutely no choice. Do you hear that? So, right now, I- I'm sure this will be a surprise to you. And many of you are going to listen to this and say, oh, come on, he's, he, he's, he doesn't have the facts. And so, all I do is say... Regard me as yet another source. I don't proclaim myself as an expert, but regard me as another source of information and research genuinely for yourself. What is going to surprise you is when I tell you that no hospital in America has yet run out of ventilators. All the panic has been based on projections. Projections. What are the projections? Well, the projections come from a place called the IE the IHME the IHME and you'll find you'll, you'll see them quoted all the time the IHME is the Institute for Health Metrics and Evaluation uh, it's part of the University of Washington in Seattle and uh, and again they're trying to do i'm giving them credit they're not trying to panic anyone they're trying to build models that's what they do and building models is a very subjective process i'm sure you know that all the panic that has made prominent politicians from 
men who've held the position of president, men who've held the position of vice president, and all the way down, prominent politicians have made the absurd proclamation that uh, climate change is the biggest threat facing us today. They've said that. What is that based on? Well, it's based on models, modeling into the future. And so what we really have to do is learn not to accept modeling as any more gospel-like than the modeling scientists themselves say. And sure enough, again, giving the IMH, IHME credit, uh, they don't say this is what's going to happen. They say, based on today's information, this is our prediction of how many deaths we're going to have, etc., etc. And so what I thought would be useful is for us to take a look at some of these um, projections that come from the IHME model. What I'm trying to explain to you, and you should go and do this for yourself. Don't just take my word for it. The IHME model has been dropping their predictions of the number of people that are going to get it, the number of people who are going to die from it, and the shortage of equipment such as ventilators. They've been dropping these numbers hugely, in some cases by as much as 50% in a week. And they don't apologize for that, neither should they, because what they say is, every day as new information comes in from different states, we feed it into the spreadsheet and we end up with a different number. I understand. What I disparage is the politicians and the media and the busybodies who leap onto each day's IHME model, or worse, they run on an old IHME model. Uh, if you look at an IHME model from April the 2nd, there's a huge difference on what they're predicting from what they're predicting today. If you compare those two predictions, as I've done, you actually feel very good and very optimistic, and like I am. This is, thank God, this is totally under control. So, um, uh, so let's give you just a little bit of an idea of how this works, if you don't mind. I'm, I'm not going to uh, bore you with a lot of it, but just to give you an idea. Now, from midday on April the 6th to midday on April the 7th, there was an increase in the death count in the United States um, of 1,487. So the number of people who've died went up in the 24 hours from midday April 6th to midday April the 7th by under 1,500, by 1,487. Now, obviously, this, this is a high number. It's disturbing and it's not nice, but it's much lower than the IHME model which according to their forecast of two days ago, forecast the new deaths for the April the 6th to the April 7th period of 1,700. So it's 1,487, not 1,700. If you look at an earlier IHME model prediction uh, from the last day or two of March, the difference between this is huge much 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 smaller now it's also worth noting that um the uh, the the increase in new york in other words out of the 1480 deaths 
in the last 24 hours of the time I'm, I'm talking right now, uh, 731 of those, about half of them were in New York. And the New York Times headline today was New York records the largest number of deaths in a single day. Is that not disturbing to, to read? New York records the largest number of deaths in a single day. What they didn't mention is that this was an increase of 14%, not the increase of 23, 24, and 25% that New York had been experiencing a week ago and 10 days ago. So the important thing is, and, and this is not just putting a positive spin on it, this is the most significant news about the coronavirus for anybody living in New York, and that is that the rate of increase has gone down from about 20 to 25% to about 14 to 15%. And now this has been consistent for several days. So the number is still large. A 15% increase is large, but that's because the previous day was large and the day before was larger, right? The cycle doesn't stop overnight, but the key metric is the rate at which it's changing. And that rate is now slowing which is very positive indeed. But the New York Times is not looking for positive news in the United States of America. They consistently, and I found this again and again and again, they report improvements in Italy and Spain and the United Kingdom. But here for the United States, they keep negative as long as they can get away with it. And as usual, the rest of the mainstream press follows the New York Times. The same negative headline, New York records the largest number of deaths in a single day. No wonder everyone's panicking. That same headline appeared on CBS, on Market Watch, on CNBC, on USA Today, and the Washington Post. And not one of them also mentioned, and it also, while it is, a, a large number it represents a slowing down of the rate of increase which is hugely significant it really is uh, governors when they're calling on their need for ventilators and they need help from the federal government so again for those of you who are interested in in checking out on this and and seeing how it works uh, as i say everybody is going off the models of the um, Institute for Health uh, ME Measurements and Evaluation uh, at the University of Washington. So they did a March 30th uh, presentation. They did an April 2nd, and they did an April 5th. And uh, by the time you listen to this, there will have been at least another one or two uh, releases of the model from the IMHE. At any rate, I don't expect there to be any change in what I'm telling you is the trend. The trend is that politicians and news media deliberately are using old projections, even though the new projections are very heartwarming and the current realities. In other words, April the 7th, April 6th to April 7th reality is far, far better than the April 5th 
model from the IMHE. So I, I want to stress that as, uh, as strongly as I possibly can. Uh, I also want to mention that, uh, that most of the statistics now are based not on how many reported cases, because I think even the lying people at the New York Times, even the America-hating folks in media, and even the uh, willfully uh, and deliberately misleading politicians, I think they've all realized that most of us have figured out that increases in infection uh, could just as well be attributed to increased testing. It doesn't mean that there are actually more people catching it. And that is why most of the statistics have switched not only to death rates, but also to death rates per million. In other words, to even out the reports from smaller states versus bigger states, smaller countries and bigger countries. And so deaths per million turns out to be the figure that is now being used by most uh, official sources. However, I want to add one more piece of information, and that is, to put it, to put it bluntly, and obviously every death is, is a tragedy, but if a 94-year-old lady in a wheelchair who's had a stroke and uh, suffers from emphysema um, dies and she gets labeled a corona death, even though it's not exactly the, it's not that relevant. So uh, where do I get this from? Well, from no less an authority than the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, government agency, right, that actively encourages the over-reporting of deaths. So, to summarize, even using the official government figures, the reality is ever so much better than the modeling and ever so much better than what politicians are citing, namely old projections. But now I want to go beyond that and say that the deaths that are being reported are overestimated. They are exaggerated. Okay, so let's, um, let, let me try and be a bit more specific. The question is, what qualifies as a coronavirus fatality for official counting purposes? And the answer is you should be very, very skeptical uh, because New York, for a start, is unbelievably vague. You cannot get a solid answer on the question of what qualifies as a coronavirus fatality from New York. They will not tell you. And they should, but they won't because it's a big game being played for, uh, for a lot of obvious reasons, political, financial and so uh, uh, I, I would think, again, if, if there were people who really spoke for us, what they should be saying to Governor Cuomo, what they should be saying to the Center for Disease Control, what they should be saying to the administration is, if you want us to believe that coronavirus poses such a risk to the general population that the most unbelievably intrusive measures ever invoked in America have to be applied at deadly risk to the economic health of the, of 
the country and individuals, then you guys must clarify your, how you classify this. We're asking you for a simple question. What counts f- as a coronavirus fatality? And you will find, as I have found so far, you cannot get an answer. They're staying deliberately vague. Big red flag there, my friends. Big red flag. Um, we, we know, obviously, that uh, elderly are at risk. We know that underlying medical issues of any kind, uh, diabetes, heart uh, disease, respiratory disease, all of these things. But the question is, all these fatalities in those cases are actually being attributed to coronavirus as the main cause instead of noting coronavirus as a contributing factor. That's the problem. And uh, again, uh, this information I was able to get from the CDC, uh, they don't advertise it, but it certainly shows that the official death toll figures are being rigged to show a much higher fatality rate due to coronavirus than is real. Um, Let me read to you uh, directly from the CDC. Um, let me just find this. Okay, so here is a seven-page brochure, a seven-page document from the CDC entitled Vital Statistics Reporting Guidance. Uh, It's called Report Number 3, dated April 2020. And... um, here, I'm reading now just from this document. In cases where a definitive diagnosis of COVID-19 cannot be made but is suspected, it is acceptable to report COVID-19 on a death certificate. In these instances, certifiers should use their best clinical judgment in determining if a COVID-19 infection was likely. Do you hear that? There is no requirement to do a test to confirm the presence of the virus at all. I'm reading more from this document. This is CDC. Ideally, testing for COVID-19 should be conducted, but it is acceptable to report COVID-19 on a death certificate without this confirmation. Absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um, they provide uh, several examples. One of them is an 86-year-old female non-ambulatory stroke victim. And um, let's see what they say about her. Uh, I want to I be able to, again, I want to read it to you exactly. Here we are. Um, an 86-year-old female with an unconfirmed case of COVID-19. An 86-year-old female passed away at home. Her husband reports that she was non-ambulatory after suffering an ischemic stroke three years ago. He stated that uh, five days prior, she developed a fever and severe cough after being exposed to an ill family member, etc., etc. She refused to go to the hospital, even though he urged her. When her breathing became more labored, uh, she was unresponsive that morning and they phoned the EMS. Upon EMS arrival, the patient was pulseless. Her husband stated that he and his wife had advanced directives and she was not to be resuscitated. After consulting with medical command, she was pronounced dead and the uh, cause of death was coronavirus, COVID-19. You see what's going on here? Um, 
you've got to you've got to see that when you're killing an economy and you're applying these kinds of restraints on such a large part of America's population, that kind of bureaucratic guesswork is totally unacceptable. They can't do that. Oh, yes, they can, because this is what President Trump called the swamp. This is part of the political and bureaucratic party that runs everything in America. So people should be aware of this, that, um, that even, by the way, even with this kind of incredible looseness, the death, the actual death toll tallied by the Center for Disease Control is not even close to the numbers that are reported for New York by the New York Times. It's absolutely amazing. Um, so uh, the, the figures are very, very vague. And, and I just want to urge you to make sure that you check these things for yourself. Don't just buy into the hysteria. Just because the crowd is running in a certain direction doesn't necessarily mean that that is the right way for you to be running as well. Uh, maybe just uh, give me another minute on this, and that's all I'll all I'll take. Okay, um, because again, uh, Governor Cuomo of New York, who I believe is running for to be Democratic nominee uh, for the 2020 presidential election. Um, I'm, I'm sure that's what he's doing. And, and I'm not the only one thinking that, obviously. Uh, but he holds his uh, daily press briefings and he announces that day's death toll. And the, uh, and the media is there fawning on him like, uh, like, like earnest sophomores uh, and pseudo-intellectuals sitting and doting on his every word. And, um, and you've got to know, right, the city of New York only started recording fatalities on March 22nd. And on that day, they immediately said 63 residents died of the disease. By April the 6th, the figure they announced, the fatality figure in New York, state in New York, for coronavirus climbed to 2,400 deaths. Okay. So he gives these figures, but at the same time, on the press releases, they do have a little um, caveat, which reads, all data in this report, meaning the report from Governor Cuomo, all data in this report are preliminary and subject to change as cases continue to be investigated. Okay, what does that mean? Right? Uh, do health officials straight away say that people died of corona if there's any possibility of saying that? Well, yeah, that's very possible that that's the only. We don't know, but that's very possibly the, the case, certainly based on CDC guidelines. And in any event, what do they mean will be investigated? Right? If the federal government needs several weeks to confirm a COVID 19 death, when exactly will all this investigation take place? And will they? Okay, so the one thing, however, when you when you look at the into the documents, and this does not get mentioned in Governor Cuomo's um, press conference, but if you look at the numbers as I've done, there is something really valuable. Okay, so uh, 
say you know a total now of uh, two and a half thousand deaths roughly in new york out of two and a half thousand coronavirus attributed deaths how many of them you think had no underlying conditions half a quarter 600 500 no 46 you hear that four tens and a six 46 only 46 deaths in new york that were attributed to coronavirus did not have any other conditions that could have caused their deaths 46 that's very different from the official figures so uh, i think it's really really important to look at the stuff carefully and to realize that there is a deep interest on the part of human beings uh, to tend towards the worst of the worst case scenario okay why it is that politicians do it i've explained why is it that news outlets do it i've explained why is it that medical organizations do it i've explained but what about ordinary people what about all the folks on social media who are hysterical sounding oh i mean it's it's like the end of days and maybe that's the clue because otherwise and I, I, I give this to you to contemplate in your quiet moments. What makes ordinary people feel so seduced by bad news? Why are they so eager to believe the worst and to pass it on, to tell everybody they know of just how bad it is? And all the people who are not taking this seriously. Can you believe how stupid the president is? He's talking of opening parts of the economy. Doesn't he realize people are dying by the thousands? This is the sort of thing I see on social media. What is it? Why is it that the natural instinct of people, and it's not a good thing, right? most of our instincts are bad most of our instincts are to overeat and under exercise right most of our instincts are to spend rather than save most of our instincts are to party and not invest and study uh, our instincts are awful and that being the case we also have an instinct that it would appear to immediately believe that the sky is falling to immediately believe worst case scenario why is that what is it about people that only more elevated human beings only people who have worked on themselves only people who are truly intellectually open to views that contradict their feelings and their instincts why is it that most of us feel this incredibly seductive pull towards bad news and let's pass it on let's tell everybody else how awful things are i wonder why that is isn't that odd i think it's very odd okay got to tell you a few more things i want to read to you um the guiding principles from the founder of the toyota motor corporation sakichi toyota uh, and these are his five principles that are still taught to managers at toyota always be faithful to your duties thereby contributing to the company and to the overall good okay can't you can't 
argue with that. Number two, always be studious and creative, striving to stay ahead of the times. Okay, can't argue with that. Always be practical and avoid frivolousness. Can't argue with that. Always strive to build a home-like atmosphere at work that is warm and friendly. Well, that might work a little bit better in a homogenous society like Japan. But um, if you build a home-like atmosphere at work that is warm and friendly and you make that a guiding principle, um, well, I'd recommend you be very cautious about that. I certainly think, you know, respected work and, uh, and so on. But uh, friendliness and warm and home-like there could be definite problems with trying to encourage that kind of atmosphere at work. Number five, always have respect for spiritual matters and remember to be grateful at all times. Well, I don't, th- the, the second part, always be grateful at all times, I think is wonderful. Always have respect for spiritual matters. <sighs> Unless what he's saying is that, uh, and and maybe I'm maybe I'm going to go with that, um, to be aware that not everything is physical, that there are important spiritual things in life. Okay, so here four out of five of Sakichi Toyoda's principles for managing the Toyota Motor Corporation, uh, four out of five are are terrific, and one of them um, questionable. Again, my point just being, just because somebody who is successful uh, in what he's done, when he did it, and where he did it, gives out certain rules, that doesn't mean that they are immediately transferable into your life uh, in exactly the same way, right? Um, We have, for instance, Jack Welch. I, I alluded to that a little bit earlier. Um, Jack Welch wrote a book called Winning. Uh, He wrote it with his wife, Susie, and he provides um, several rules of leadership, right? Eight rules of leadership. Uh, Leaders relentlessly upgrade their team. Okay. Number two, leaders make sure people not only see the vision, but they live it. Number three, leaders get into everyone's skin, exuding positive energy and optimism. Number four, leaders establish trust with candid transparency and credit. Number five, leaders have the courage to make unpopular decisions. Number six, leaders probe and push with a curiosity. Number seven, leaders inspire risk-taking. And number eight, leaders celebrate. Okay, so, um, you know, people like lists. We all like lists. I've, I've even used them on from time ah even me i've even used lists uh, a few weeks ago i did a podcast about the 10 things you know people we all like lists uh, it, it sort of makes the complexities of life manageable so um, when i was researching for my book thou shall prosper the 10 commandments for making money i researched what the heads of five of the major business schools in the united states would define leadership as now uh, not one of them included any of the eight things that jack welsh says these are the eight rules of leadership and they all gave all five gave five completely different and in several cases incompatible definitions of leadership now it's also important you know if if you're in business right you are making money 
you're doing that by serving God's other children in one way or another. It's also important not to overthink things. It's important not to overcomplicate things. It's important to sort of know what the simplest answer sometimes is. It doesn't mean you necessarily have to end up with that answer. You should consider it. Because um, although I didn't tell them because they didn't ask me, I had my own definition of leadership. My definition of leadership was anybody who has followers. You look behind you and you've got people following you. I don't care if it's your family, if it's your department at work, fellow workers. I don't mind if it's people at your church or your synagogue. Wherever it is, you look back and you see there are people taking their lead from you, people following you. You are now a leader. End of story. There is no school on earth that you can go to to learn how to be a leader because very often leadership characteristics are very often spiritual. Number two, leadership characteristics are unique to place and time. And I, I covered this in Thou Shall Prosper, where we show that somebody who under wartime conditions was a wonderful leader under peacetime conditions, not so much. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. But you can't always just go with these rules. It doesn't always work that way. How's about uh, a guy called uh, Konosuke Matsushita? Have you heard of Matsushita Industries? Uh, well, they own brands like Panasonic and uh, Technics, National. Those are all brands of Matsushita. And... Um, uh, Mr. Matsushita, who started the company, was born in 1894 and uh, started started his company. And it's, you know, like all of these stories, they're fascinating to read. And obviously, there's something, you know, there was something really remarkable about this man. But um, there are a lot of people I've noticed who follow almost doggedly the principles of Mr. Matsushita's leadership uh, ideas. And what are they? He's got seven principles. You've got to make sure you're contributing to society. Should I, should I respond to these while I go through them? Or, well, I'll go through them all and I'll, I'll tell you what I, how I react to each one. Number two, you must always be fair and honest. Number three, uh, you must focus on cooperation and team spirit. Number four, uh, you must have an untiring effort for improvement. Number, uh, fi uh, number five, you must be uh, five. You must always be cur courteous and humble. Number six, adaptability. You really got to be adaptable. Number seven, gratitude. Okay, in the reverse order, gratitude, you know, you know what I think of that. Uh, adaptable, absolutely. I write extensively on the... Um, on, and this is in, in several of my books, uh, change is not just something you must accept. You must embrace it. Change is, it, it says you're alive. It says you're still in business. You've got to welcome change. And so adaptability, hugely valuable. Then courtesy and humility. Courtesy, there's never a reason for bad manners. There's never an excuse for not being courteous. Humility, um, yes. Uh, yes, I, uh, it, it's it's a good thing, but it also can be taken um, to extremes like anything else. 
And if you are running a company with a lot of employees, um, not sure that humility is necessarily always a good thing because there are always going to be people in your organization. If your organization is big enough, there will be people who will misinterpret your humility as vulnerability. And so being um, humility as a major principle, um, I'd say you want to think about that one really carefully. Untiring effort for improvement. Um, We've got to get more clarity on what Mr. Matsushita meant by that. Self-improvement. Hard to know exactly what he means by improvement. Improvement as a worker. What does it mean? It does need much more uh, breaking out. Cooperation and team spirit. Okay, we got that. Fairness and honesty. Now, this one is not necessarily good. If you're leading an organization, you know, whether you are leading a, a government or a company or, or, or anything, fairness and honesty. First of all, fairness has no definition. What does fair mean? Now, it, doesn't, it obviously doesn't mean equality because I understand what equality means, and that would mean that the, uh, that the newest shift worker should be paid the same as Mr. Matsuchita, and he probably doesn't mean that. Uh, so what does fairness mean? Not really defined. Nice, warm-sounding word, but not defined. Honesty? Absolutely not. On everything? Absolutely not. Uh, on, on many things, yes. But give me, let me give you an example of something not um, a major threat to the company, and you don't sleep that night. You're the head of the company. You're not sure if your company is going to survive this crisis. Nobody else knows about it. Should you tell them? Is that part of being honest? Absolutely not. Because part of what you're being paid for as the leader and as the head is to carry worry on your shoulder, not to make yourself feel better by spreading it around. Because... It quickly turns into panic. Sometimes it is the responsibility of a leader not to necessarily be honest. Um, His first one is the most disturbing. Contribute to society. Look, um, if you are in business, as I assume you are in one way or another, contributing to society should not be on the top of your list. Because it is too hard to know what that means. Top of your list should be pleasing your customers. Watching your profit. Watching your cash flow. Those are the things that are really important. But that you should be focused on contributing to society? I don't think so. If you are contributing to your boss or to your employer or to your customers or to your employees that's as much as any human being can be asked to do because that can actually be done but contributing to society how about the world health let's say you work for the world health organization are you contributing to society i don't think so it's been shown now that the who was complicit with the chinese in covering up the early days of the coronavirus when things really could have been done very effectively it really could have been confined but uh, WHO, very complicit. So are they improving society, contributing to society? I think not. And so that is very vague. Overthinking it, um, not worth keeping that 
as a principle by means of which to run your business. Definitely would not recommend doing that. Now, um, I said earlier that I would uh, share with you another one of my uh, talks on how Christians in England, Europe, and America played a fundamental role, a role that really, really impacted the future um, in the 19th century for the founding of Israel in the 20th. And um, uh, the truth is, I'm probably not going to do that this time. Um, I Actually, I, I got very little feedback from the last one. I got a little bit of feedback, so I don't really know um, just how much people enjoyed it but i'll try it again but not today because i'm already close to my time limit as far as today is concerned Uh, but i did say that i would tell you a little bit about the general application of passover and and here here is what it is and it is that the most difficult thing about improving yourself the most difficult thing about improving yourself is getting out of the state of complacency, getting out of the state that says where I am is just fine. It's just where it is, no problem. And the reality is that the reason that the story of Egypt and the exodus from Egypt occupies so many chapters in the book of Exodus is because it's not a history book. It is an instruction manual for your life. And that is really what the Passover Seder is. When I call the Passover Seder an annual inoculation against stagnation, that's what I'm talking about. How to understand the book of Exodus in a way that allows each and every one of us to move beyond. What I mean by that is that in the Lord's language, in Hebrew, Egypt doesn't just mean the name of a place in North Africa. The word Egypt in Hebrew is the word that means restriction. It means whatever is obstructing you from reaching your God-given destiny. I'm sure you would all agree, right, whether you are religiously inclined or not, whether you regard the Bible as God's word as I do or not, it doesn't make any difference. I'm sure you would agree that you have a God-given destiny. Now, if you're an atheist, you'll leave out the word God-given, but I'm sure you would agree that you are capable of more than you are doing right now, right? You are capable of achieving more. You are capable of being a better person. You are capable of being a bigger person. If you're, if you're not building a family, you could be. You could be a better husband, a better parent, better, better wife. You, all, all of these areas, your business, you could be doubling your revenue maybe and increasing your profits similarly. Yeah, you could. It would take a lot of hard work, no question about it, but you could do it. And you probably even know how to do it. You could be healthier than you are, couldn't you? Right? And all of these things, I'm telling you, I tell myself as well, they're true for me as they are for you. And in many cases, we know what to do. That's not the problem. 
there's enough information available to know how to improve your health, to know how to improve your revenue and build your business, to know how to be a better um, sibling, a better parent, a better spouse. All of these pieces of information are out there. So what's obstructing us? What is the Egypt that is obstructing us? See, you have your own Egypt. You're in Egypt, as I am. I'm not going to tell you what my Egypt is, and I don't want to know what your Egypt is. But I do know one thing, and that is if you are a normal, functioning, healthy, enthusiastic, passionate, vibrant, ambitious human being, you are in an Egypt. Whatever it is, there is something in your life. Maybe it is you have not done some things you should do. In many of our cases, it's that we do do things we shouldn't do. But whatever it is, these mindsets that keep us doing the wrong things and stopping us from making the effort to do the right things, that's called being in Egypt. And it is the Passover Seder that helps us actualize the book of Exodus, the first 12 chapters of the book of Exodus, into something that is truly life-changing and life-affirming. That's what the Passover Seder is all about. And it helps us identify the fact that you're not going to get out of your Egypt any more than the Israelites got out of their Egypt unless you do what they do, which is you've got to be willing to move out of your comfort zone. That's one example. You just got to be willing to move out of your comfort zone because if you stick in your comfort zone, why you'll be doing exactly the same thing today that you did yesterday. And if you do that... You have just decreed that tomorrow will be the same as today. And so, obviously, you have to be willing to move out of your comfort zone. Um, I'll tell you something else. It's going to take courage, just as it took courage for the Israelites to follow Moses. And, in fact, the majority didn't, because it's not easy to get out of Egypt. And getting Egypt out of you well, that's even harder. That's even more challenging. But all of these things can be done. It isn't a case of what you know. It's a case of what you can be. It's a huge difference, right? Because simply knowing information, as I've spoken in the past, doesn't change your destiny. Being intelligent by itself doesn't change your destiny. But if you can make of yourself a bigger person, if you can get out from under Egypt, because Egypt is a very comfortable place to be. It really is. So much so that um, people like it. The majority of people didn't want to leave Egypt. And what's more, there's a general pattern in the world, and that is that whoever takes you out of Egypt becomes your new slave owner, becomes your new boss, if you're not very, very careful. Uh, we watched this happening throughout, um, throughout the 60s and 70s. Colonialism was being overthrown in Africa, and uh, new countries were emerging, in many cases, with the help of the Soviets and the Cubans. And who, for the next 20 years, became the new boss of Africa? the Soviets. 
In other words, whoever leads you out of, of Egypt can very easily become your new boss if you're not careful. And that's one of the reasons that when people talk about the Passover Seder as being a celebration of freedom, simply not true. It is a celebration of switching your service from human beings to the real boss, our Father in heaven. That's the underlying principle here. So we're not saying that we can ever achieve a condition of never being subservient to anybody. No, it's not realistic. But if we choose to be subservient to God, then no man can be our master. And that's one of the reasons that every communist tyranny in the history of the world has attacked religion, because religion is the only way out of submission to communist tyranny. And it is only the God-fearing individual who can say to his communist overlord, you're not the boss of me. I only have one boss, and it is not you. And so a lot of these are the underlying principles that make the Passover Seder not a historic reenactment, not an ancient ritual, but a vibrant annual inoculation. It is an experience that changes. Now, I'm not saying there's no other way to do it, obviously, but uh, it's something that has served the Hebrew people very well for a long period of time. Uh, we have shown a resilience in being able to get out of many, many, many different Egypts and finding many, many, many different promised lands. And so you know that in the language of metaphor, right now in your life, there is somewhere a promised land waiting for you. And you probably even dream of it sometimes. You even sometimes say to yourself, if only. But it's there. And it's so real sometimes you can see it and taste it. But you haven't yet become the person who can get out of your own Egypt. And to do that, well, Passover is just helpful no matter what your background. And that's why it is that uh, because many of the group seders that were going to be cancelled because of the coronavirus this year, many people are going to be embarking on the Passover service by themselves. And so I wanted to reassure you that this is not a hard thing to do. It's not complicated. Don't overthink it, right? Don't overthink it. It's easy to do. All you need is a little bit of information. And I prepared that in the form of three audio programs of how to lead your own Seder, either just for you or for a few relatives or maybe a few friends. Whatever you decide you're going to be doing, the solution is easy. It's right there. So in the description of this podcast, you will see it. You will also see it at my website at rabbidaniellappin.com, where you will have no trouble navigating over to the store and look for a three-part program on conducting a Passover Seder. Do it, enjoy it, grow by it, and move onwards and upwards always. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. 
I thank you for being part of today's show and for all you do to help my work. Much appreciated. And I wish you a week of very good health as you enjoy good times with your family, with your friends, with your faith, and with your finances. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. 